0: Kim, Jan, and Carol, and all worship leaders this morning. What a beautiful service and what a good place to be. Uh, Good morning, friends. It is truly a pleasure to be back with you again today at Maranatha. Uh, For those of y'all who I have not met, my name is Jeremy Hall, and uh, it is an honor to be here at the start of Holy Week. Palm Sunday is so fascinating to me. There's so much... Going on, there's so many angles, different players, so many pieces to the story, all these Bible deep cuts and homages. It really does feel like the start to the climax of the gospel story of Jesus' earthly ministry. You can just feel the the energy, the electricity, the excitement, the promise. It's all coming together. In Jerusalem, at the Passover celebration. Today, we will take a look at the story as it's told in the Gospel of Mark. But first, I want to set the stage. This story takes place, like we said, in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover celebration. In the first century, observant Jews and God-fearing Gentiles from all over the world, anyone who could, would travel to Jerusalem to remember how God had liberated them from the oppression of the Egyptian empire. So with all these crowds, throngs, masses of people in the city, remembering how their God rescued them from slavery, oppression, and empire, you can imagine how the Roman imperial occupiers feel about this festival. For them... This is a season of anxiety and tension that they have worked out an understanding of sorts with the Judeans that they can basically keep their religion as long as it doesn't interfere with Roman operations or interests. But things have been tense lately. The terrorist slash freedom fighters, always depends whose side you're on of the, Uh, known as the Zealots, they've been attacking Roman assets. Pilate has killed Jews in retaliation. Some groups have fled to the mountains and spread talk of the end of the world. Some are talking about coming armies of angels that are going to destroy the occupying Roman legions. And there are whispers in the countryside of various possible messianic figures. From the Roman perspective, The Passover is dangerous. It represents resistance. The possibility for insurrection, for rebellion, for revolt. Attempted revolution. The Passover is defiant. It's empowering. And it's offensive to the empire. So the Romans need to make sure that while the Jews celebrate how their God liberated their ancestors from oppression that they do so in the awareness of who is really in charge. And that is Caesar. The man who made himself into a god, whose political slogans include lines like, Caesar is the prince of peace. Caesar is the king of kings. Caesar is the son of God. To pledge loyalties to Caesar, many would use the phrase, Caesar is lord. Royal decrees have been found with declarations that read such as, there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved other than that of Caesar. So a celebration about how these people's god likes to overthrow god kings and cast off imperial power doesn't sit well with the occupiers. So, with all of the tension in the air, the holy city prepares for the festival. Now, the normal population of Jerusalem in this time is estimated to be somewhere around 40,000 people, residents, folks that are always there. But at the Passover, the city would receive as many as 200,000 visitors. It takes a lot to make the Romans nervous. But a quarter million people gathered in their holy city in religious fervor, celebrating how their God saves them from empires, well, that will do it. So Rome does what Rome does best, a show of force. Caesar calls it Pax Romana, in English, Roman peace. Remember, the Caesar calls himself the Prince of Peace, and it is his purpose, his right, his mandate to establish a global empire of prosperity and peace. But this, this Pax Romana, this Roman peace, it's a specific kind of peace. It's the kind of peace that comes at the end of a sword. It's the kind of peace that is imposed with legions of occupying soldiers. It's the kind of peace that, if you disagree with it, nails you to a cross. So as the Passover week starts, there's a commotion. Crowds of people line the streets. People are chanting and screaming. You can imagine the great procession, right? The noise, the fanfare, the people. But Kim, I'm not talking about Jesus' procession, right? We're not talking necessarily about Jesus' triumphant entry to the city. From the West Gate, there's another parade taking place. The Roman reinforcements march into the city, making a show of their power. The additional legions of soldiers, with the Roman leaders and they arrive and they head through the streets of the city to the praetoria a military fortress built intentionally adjacent to the temple where they will be garrisoned ready to put down any uprising crush any revolutionaries and kill any would-be messiahs their presence will be felt all throughout the city but their focus will be on patrolling around the religious sites in jerusalem so that while the Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims come to worship the God who liberates slaves and frees the oppressed. They will do so under the armed watch of the Roman soldiers. Soldiers who are ready to remind them who is really in charge. The city is a powder keg. It's filled to bursting with religiosity anxiety, anger, fear, hate, hope, power, and politics. And into this powder keg of priests and Caesars rides another potential king. We will pick up today's reading in Mark 11 at verse 1 and go to verse 11. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, uh, why are you stealing my donkey? Uh, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there by asked, what are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. So I guess that works. When they brought the cult to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So as the representatives of Caesar and his empire ride towards the temple from the west, King Jesus and the kingdom of God ride towards the temple from the east. You can feel the juxtaposition, right? This is a sort of, this town ain't big enough for the two of us kind of moment here. Jesus knows what he's doing as they converge on the temple. And so do the people. Jesus sends his disciples to go fetch him a donkey to make his entrance into the city. The, the Gospel of John points out the significance of the donkey, reminding us of the words of Zechariah 9, nine, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey." This prophecy was understood by the Jewish people as a reference to the coming of their Messiah. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, it was seen as a sign that he was this long-awaited Messiah. Jesus also chose his point of entry. The Mount of Olives is connected to Messianic expectation as well. In Zechariah 14.4, it is written, Oh, that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. So when the rumors of Jesus Nazareth being the Messiah were combined with his entering the city at the Passover on a donkey from the east, from the Mount of Olives, Jesus is activating all sorts of biblical prophecy and Jewish imagination. So Jesus is being very intentional In this act of guerrilla theater, as he uses his dramatic actions to reveal his identity and plans. So what about the people? Are their actions just random acts of excitement and adoration, or are they reciprocating Jesus's intentionality? Let's take it piece by piece and see what we can see. How about the Palms? It's Palm Sunday. Let's talk about the Palms. What's the deal with the palms? Well, everyone who witnessed this event knew what the palms meant. All across the ancient world, palm branches were signs of victory. We see it evidenced in symbols in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, in Greece, and Rome. And it holds the same significance in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 8 and Nehemiah 8, palm branches Represent victory. In Psalm 92, the righteous who triumph and persevere are compared to palms. And maybe for this story, most significantly, in the non canonical book of 1 Maccabees, the people of Jerusalem laid palms on the ground in front of Simon Maccabees as he entered the city after defeating the Seleucids. So everyone, from the Jewish peasants to the priests in the temple to the king in his palace, and the Roman authorities knew what these palms meant. We can even trace this tradition through to Revelation 7, where we see the, uh, those saints who persevere seen at the throne of God holding palms. How about the people laying their cloaks on the ground in front of Jesus? Once again, this is a, a common practice in the ancient Near East to show reverence, usually to a king. We see it in the Bible in a couple other places, most clearly in 2 Kings 9, when King Jehu, a decisive reformer, was anointed as king by the prophet Elisha. The people of Israel responded by taking their outer garments and laying them on the ground before him and blowing trumpets and proclaiming, Jehu is king. So this act is an acknowledgment of Jesus' kingly status which is also the point of calling his arrival the arrival of King David. We saw that in verse 10. A uniter like David, a reformer like Jehu. What about, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Keen Bible readers will recognize this phrase as being directly lifted from Psalm 118, a psalm associated with the Passover festival and going up in pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And then there's this strange, untranslated word, Hosanna. The word means something like, please save us now. So to recap, the people, they get it. Or at least they act like they do. They see Jesus as a king like David. They see him as a reformer like Jehu. They see him sent by God. They see him as potential Messiah, they see him as savior. This looks like Rome's worst nightmare. A would-be king has just ridden into the powder keg of a city, has openly signaled that he is the promised liberating Messiah, and now has a massive crowd chanting Hosanna, begging this donkey-riding king to save them. This is exactly what the Romans didn't want to have happen. Jesus guy that everyone's been talking about just rode into Jerusalem with an army. What is he going to do? Well, let's take a look. Here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus rides all the way to the temple. He looks around and he leaves. In John, Jesus reaches the city and stops to talk about his coming death, what it will mean to enter the city, confusing many of those who have been part of this great procession. In Matthew, Jesus kicks the money changers out of the temple and then heals all those in the city who are in need. And lastly, in Luke, Jesus weeps over the city when he reaches it, over its injustice, over its corruption, over its financial manipulations, and he cleanses the temple. And starts teaching. Jesus refuses to use the weapons of his enemies, not the religious coercion and domination of the religious leaders or the violence and power of Pax Romana. In fact, all of Holy Week reveals this to us. The way of Jesus is on full display in the last days of his earthly ministry. He rejects the army Offered to him on Palm Sunday. He rejects claiming Jerusalem Temple as his throne room. He rejects overthrowing the court of the Herodian king. He rejects fighting the invading Romans. He rejects a lavish and luxurious Seder celebration. He rejects security in the garden, disarming Peter when he draws his weapon to defend Jesus. He rejects the security that his divinity could have afforded him. He refuses to play the game with the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate. He refuses to compromise on his identity, even for the sake of his life. He refuses to resist the mockery of the Roman guards. Instead, Philippians 2.8, being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus' response to the evils of his day was not violence, politics, subterfuge, or compromise. During Holy Week, Jesus goes to war and he shows us what our weapons are as his followers. As Christians, our weapons, if we are to follow Jesus, seem to be compassion, honesty, Faith, hope, love for neighbor and for enemy. Care for those who are being persecuted. Care for those who are being crushed by the powerful. Care for those who are on the bottom or on the edge of the world. Jesus has made a triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and we are about to, with him and his first followers, get swept up, In the chaos, the terror, the holiness, the silence, the surprise, and the victory of Holy Week. Or, at least we have a chance to. We also have a chance to miss it. To let it slip by without convicting, challenging, or changing us. Because a great many of those in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago missed Jesus. Jesus. The crowd that was a part of the grand processional, the worshipers with their palms, those singing songs of praise, declaring their allegiance to Jesus, will soon be shouting for his execution as they choose their folk hero, Barabbas, over Jesus. Barabbas, a a folk hero, one of them. Someone who does what's necessary to defeat their enemies. They missed Jesus. The king of Judea, will remain in his palace in comfort, security, and luxury. I'm sure he had a great Easter dinner with his family. But he missed Jesus. Those who valued order over justice, those who trusted the system to to work the situation out, perhaps they sit in their homes and talk amongst themselves, yes, it's sad what happened to Jesus. But if he didn't want to be crucified, he should have just cooperated. They missed Jesus. Leaders like Pilate, who are more concerned about how they would be perceived by the people, but by the Jerusalem Post or the New Roman Times or on the people's news scroll, he missed Jesus. The temple leaders with their, their art and their rituals and their songs and their poetry and their education, they say things like, we see that you are a prophet who comes from God. But why do you have to do it here? Why do you have to disturb our services? They missed Jesus. The zealots who flooded Jerusalem, creeping through the crowds with concealed weapons, knowing that the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a sword is a good guy with a sword, they fantasize about killing Roman soldiers and politicians that they disagree with. They fantasize about reclaiming their country. They They dream about the fight, about the coming storm, and they get their chance. In just a very few years, they will get their chance for the fight. Most of them will die, and their homeland will be forever taken from them. They are too busy with their plans and hate to give this suffering servant, this peaceful prophet, this enemy-loving would-be Messiah, any time. Most of them missed Jesus. The Essenes of the Qumran community, these are the people who would give us the Dead Sea Scrolls, they have withdrawn from society entirely to live in communes and reject the current order and protest those in power. They were too far away. They missed Jesus. The Romans, blinded by their power, entrapped by their own might, a Western military superpower, opt occupying and dominating the small Middle Eastern nation of Judea for their own interests. They can only see Jesus as a threat. Even his words are dangerous to them. They miss Jesus. They arrest Jesus. The Pharisees and Sadducees, the, the religious traditionalists, they demand that the government enforce their morality. They missed Jesus, and they killed Jesus. What about us? Where do we fall in this drama? Will we be so distracted that we miss Jesus? Will we be too wrapped up in our politics, our purposes, our possessions, our projects, our causes, our outrage, our plans, our people, our family, our church, as to miss Jesus? Today, as we prepare for Holy Week and look forward towards Easter, we have an opportunity. Jesus has made his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem, and now, as we enter a time of communion, we get the chance to decide how we will enter into this story, how we will welcome Jesus into our lives and into our bodies. Part of the, the visceralness, part of the solidness, the realness of communion is that Jesus is interested in what we do with our souls and what we do with our bodies. What sort of welcome will Jesus receive? Will we take him in as he is? Will we let Jesus just be Jesus? Or will we try to change Jesus, make him safe, more sterile, easier to swallow, more like us, or will we be brave enough to take Jesus as he comes?